Hello and welcome to the Disclosure Podcast. I am your host, Ed. Thank you so much for tuning in today and I hope that you find this episode insightful. If you are new to the podcast, I have a catalogue of previous episodes and interviews discussing a broad range of different related topics surrounding veganism, morality, ethics, communication and the environment, as well as discussing current events. If you want more episodes of the podcast or if you just like to become a supporter of the work that I do, then you can sign up to my Patreon to get an exclusive Patreon-only only Q&A episode every single month where I go through your questions. And finally, if you enjoy listening to the podcast, then it would mean the world to me if you could leave a review on iTunes. Thank you so much again for tuning in. So hello everyone and welcome to the next episode of the Disclosure Podcast. I hope you're all doing very well and I'm really excited to bring you today's episode because in this episode I am talking with Jonathan Balcombe and Jonathan is a biologist who has a PhD in the study of animal behavior. He's also the author of four popular science books that explore the inner lives of animals including Pleasurable Kingdom, Second Nature, and also What a Fish Knows, which is a New York Times bestseller. And it's actually Jonathan's work in exploring the behavior of marine animals that we're discussing in today's podcast. Because of course, as we know as vegans, the fish can often be ignored and we can reduce fish to almost just these lifeless beings that exist in the ocean, when actually their life is incredibly rich and they do some amazing things that we often just overlook or simply haven't realized until very recently. And so Jonathan's work really explores these animals and how wonderful and amazing that they are. Jonathan has also published over 60 scientific papers and book chapters on animal behavior and animal protection. Formerly, he was the department chair for animal studies with the Humane Society University and also director of animal sentience with the Humane Society Institute for Science and Policy. So without further ado, I'll get into today's podcast and welcome Jonathan to the Disclosure Podcast. All right. So hi, Jonathan. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. I I really appreciate it. And it's a real privilege and honor to have you on to be able to speak to you about fish and marine life. Hi, Ed. Good to be here. First of all, I just want to congratulate you on the success of uh, What a Fish Knows, which is a, a New York Times bestseller and has influenced so many people to understand more about the lives of fish. And so what I really want to know is what first compelled you to start wanting to learn more about fish and caring about marine life? Yeah, I've always cared about all animals. And I, I knew there was some really interesting science about fish but and fishes, uh, but we never really, most of us don't see it. And so um, I want it, and there's a lot of misunderstanding about fishes. We tend to relegate them to the cellar of among vertebrates. Uh, they don't deserve to be there. So they were an ideal subject because there's a lot of really cool science to bring to light. I had some personal experiences and I could get stories from others that also also helps. But also there was a lot of um, enlightenment to be had. You know, people didn't really know much about, we don't know much about fishes. So it was a real treat to to delve into the literature and find out what was there and combine that with, you know, stories because people like stories, but, you know, credible stories uh, that are not just entertaining, but they're also real. And um, it's been one of the most rewarding aspects of that, of that project that it remains four years after the book was published. It remains very much fit. Fish are getting a lot of attention anyway for various reasons. Um, but um, it's it's been great. To, I still hear from people to almost a week weekly basis, you know, to comment, to to read a book, or to to have a media interview and just sort of give a talk. So it's uh, lots of buzz has followed from that book, which has been gratifying. That's wonderful to hear. And um, I suppose one of the more obvious questions 
well, I suppose obvious for us, but it's still a kind of a, a question that so many people have in society, I suppose, is how do we know that fish feel pain and that they experience um, or that they're sentient in general? How, how have we proved that? Yeah, first of all, just just the considering their biology and their anatomy, they, they're full members of the vertebrate group. They have the same systems, including a sophisticated nervous system that we have. They're mobile. They can move away from painful events, uh, from bad things. That's a very important distinction between uh, animals and plants. Uh, but there is some really good science. There was a book that came out in 2010 called Do Fish Feel Pain? And there was a question mark at the end of that title. But the science presented inside, which was not always fish friendly, nevertheless showed that fishes have uh, different types of pain receptors for chemical, mechanical, uh, heat pain, uh, just like we have those three kinds as well. And that they move away from painful events. If you give them an opportunity to get a pain relieving drug, they will go towards towards that drug and they will um, even pay a cost to get to get pain relief. So you can have fish who are injected with acid, very, probably very painful, and uh, they will voluntarily leave a part of the tank that is, feels safer, that they normally would spend all their time in, and they'll go to an air, another area of the tank that's, that's brightly lit and there's nowhere to hide. They would avoid it normally all the time, but they'll go there if the, if the scientists put a little painkiller, in this case lidocaine, in that part of the tank. Uh, to me, that's a pretty, pretty convincing way to demonstrate that these creatures uh, have the wherewithal to seek pain relief and they're even willing to pay a cost for it. That's a pretty convincing paradigm for demonstrating pain, in my view. Certainly so. I mean, it, I mean, it really is at this point just an absolutely obvious fact that fish are sentient, they have experiences, and ultimately they can suffer as well. But with that in mind, why is it that people in society have such a, a poor view on fishes? Why do we seem to have this idea that they don't feel pain or that they're not intelligent or that they have three second memories? Why do you think that we tell those things to ourselves? Well, first of all, I think we have a poor view because we have a poor view. And what I mean by that is our view of them is, is tends to be pretty depauperate, but it's partly because we can't see them very much. That's the other poor view. I live within a couple of hundred meters of Lake Ontario, and I can look out this window. Actually, I see trees right now, very nicely fall-colored trees. But beyond that is a lake. And, you know, there's thousands, probably tens, hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of fishes in this part of the this particular bay that are within a few feet or inches of that that surface that I'm looking out over, but they're out of view. And I think that's really been a disadvantage for fishes, combined with the fact that they have evolved in a different milieu. They developed they not to breathe air. They don't communicate in air. They turns out they make a lot of sounds, but those sounds are adaptive to, adapted to being, being transmitted under the water. So, you know, the, the sounds they make are, are as little heard by us as, as we would hear the shouts and yells of our fellow humans if we stuck our heads under the water all the time. We, we're just not tuned in. Our sensory systems are not tuned to that. So this is all part of a sort of a broader alienation that we've had from, from fishes. Um, they've been kind of out of our view, and it's only in the last few decades with the advent of scuba gear and uh, underwater cinematography that we see them much better. Um, we're also, you know, I think, I think, and you know this well, is that we, as a species, we have a lot of cognitive dissonance. If, if we're including an animal in our diet, then we don't want to feel too close to them. And we eat a lot of fishes, uh, estimates anywhere from several hundred billion to possibly one or two trillion a year, just astronomical numbers. And it's so easy to forget that each one is an individual 
Um, and the science shows that they're not just individuals, they're thinking, feeling individuals, they're sentient individuals. So a lot of what I'm trying to do with this, and I know what you try and do with your, with your work is get people to pay attention to these creatures and to be, to see them as sentient individuals who have lives that matter to them, who have not just biology, but biographies. Yeah, and I think you really raised an important point, which is that sense of alienation. We find it often easier to empathize with animals like cows and pigs because they portray, portray somewhat human traits almost. And it's not, well, vegans often get accused of anthropomorphizing animals, but really that's not true because it's an egocentric position to think that only humans display these kind of emotions and traits. But when we see those traits in cows and pigs, or we see their eyes and they're quite human-like, we recognize there's someone there, but fish are so different to us in every, almost every conceivable way that when we look at a fish, we find it very hard to empathize and relate to their suffering and pain. And it's almost this it's almost like it's cognitive imperfections that we have. We, as humans, we place ourselves on a pedestal and think we're so intelligent, yet we lack the intelligence to recognize someone else's suffering unless they, unless they embody something that we see within ourselves. And it's so, it's so destructive, and I suppose it's so unintelligent and so emotionally immature that we can't see fish in the same way that we see the suffering of other animals. And even with other animals, of course, we... Um, don't do much to protect them either, unfortunately. So how do we then encourage people, I suppose, to recognize the sentience in fish? How do we grant fishes the moral consideration that they deserve? Yeah, my approach is first and foremost science. I'm a scientist, so I try and marshal what the science shows. It's um, it's less refutable if it's science. It's Scientists don't, you know, will say they don't of anything they they accumulate evidence but but uh, evidence is pretty compelling and and then beyond that even though as you say and quite correctly they're vastly different from us there's also huge parallels uh, they've been subject to the same uh, forces uh, of evolution that we have over huge lengths of time a lot longer for them actually and uh, so uh, and their structure, their makeup, they have, you know, an endocrine system, they have a reproductive system, digestive system, circulatory, skeletal, skin system, etc. Um, and then you can look at their social behavior, how they interact with each other, very revealing. So, you know, some of the, some of the studies that I refer to in my book are studies done in the lab where it's probably not as great situation for the fish because they're in confinement. Um, some of those are wild, wild fish. Some of them are in some cases actually refer, return to their homes in the ocean, which is great. Uh, but, um, but also a lot of the studies are, are wild studies with, with fishes in their own milieu, observational studies, sometimes some manipulations. But, but we find from, uh, if you take all those studies together, you, we find um, a remarkable parallels between us. I mean, one parallel that I just loved learning about, it was one of those moments where I'm so glad I'm writing this book because this is so neat. This is such cool science that I, I get to write about it and share it with people. And that is that fishes uh, of, of a number of species that have been tested fall for the same optical illusions that we do. So if you present them, for instance, with the Ebbinghaus illusion, it's two red dots. It doesn't matter. The color doesn't matter so much. And then they're surrounded by different size dots. The two red dots are the same size, but if the surrounding circles are much larger than the red dot, it makes the red dot look smaller uh, compared to one that's surrounded by smaller dots. And it's a very, very powerful visual illusion. And fishes that are trained to poke their nose against the, the, the larger of two dots, if they're pr presented with this Ebbinghaus illusion, they will swim up to the one that looks bigger. It's not bigger, but it looks bigger, and they will poke their nose against that. 
how very human of them, you know, it shows that they have beliefs uh, and that those beliefs can be fallible. And uh, I, I think it's a, a nice example of how fishes can see the world as we do, that they can, they can be fooled. Uh, they, they, um, they have an impression of something and sometimes the impression is wrong. And that's not really mind blowing in the sense of the fact that animals and evolution ensures that animals deceive each other all the time. We humans are very good at being deceitful. Um, but also other animals send what are called what scientists call honest signals and dishonest signals signals that that confuse or misinform somebody else uh, it could be camouflage for instance which allows a predator perhaps to get much closer to the prey so you know that's that's maybe a little more than needs to be said about that but i i think that that serves as a good example of how the mental world of a fish can can be quite similar to the mental world of us in the sense that they will they will be taken in by the same optical illusion and the ebbing house is just one of several that they've been it's so interesting and i remember watching your tedx talk and you were talking about how a uh, fish display machiavellian intelligence um, and they'll do certain things to try and um, manipulate the scenario so that they gain more from that scenario and you gave a, a very compelling example of like grouper fish and client fish and the dynamic that they have when it comes to the cleaning process and i was wondering if you could maybe talk about that scenario and also any other situations where you think uh, fish particularly display amazing behaviors or, or traits well certainly that cleaner client uh, mutualism is one of the most interesting and well studied. Uh, there's, there's probably 100, 150, 200 scholarly, peer-reviewed scientific papers that have been written on that. And my guess is that we're, there's probably lots of papers coming out all the time on that. I haven't been tracking that lately, but the cleaner client involves uh, two fishes. Uh, well, actually, usually more than two because the cleaners work as a team, usually two or three or four maybe. And they have their station on the reef. It's a particular place. And so-called client fish, that's our term, could be there's well over 100 known species of fish that will depending on how crowded it is and busy on the reef, they will line up to wait their turn where they swim in and they kind of just hover there in the water while they get a spot treatment and a parasite removal service from these cleaners who swim into the open mouths of these fish. Some of them can be as big as sharks. They could eat these cleaners, but they never do because you, you don't eat your business partner. It's not a good way to maintain good business relations. And then they, they swim into their gills, removing little parasites or bits of algae or whatever, uh, undesirable things that are nice to be rid of for the client and good food for the cleaner. Uh, but yeah, like you say, Machiavellian, sometimes the cleaners will not do such a great job and it's been found that there's more likely to be very few, if any, fish in the queue waiting uh, when they do a shoddy job. Their, their, their eBay ratings are not as at stake uh, as if they are. If there's a lot of clients waiting in the queue. It's a lot of clients waiting in the queue. They tend to do a much better job. One of the b bad things they can do from the client's perspective is called mucus nipping, where they will take a little moat of, of that slimy layer on the outside of the client fish. That's a very useful layer, uh, sort of protects the, the fish and they like to keep it, but it turns out it's pretty nutritionally, high nutrition and uh, desirable to these cleaners. And clients will jolt when they're mucus nipped, probably because it hurts, but also possibly sending a visual signal to other clients you might not want to go to these guys today. They're not doing such a great job. So what do the cleaners do? They, they, they will sometimes stop plucking parasites or mucus, and then they will actually go and uh, flutter their pectoral fins against the client as a way to presumably mollify the client or make the client feel happier and show the other fish that, hey, you might get a little extra treatment if you come in here, a little bit of massage therapy in addition to the parasite removal. So, um, you know, it's almost like 
you can't you can't make this stuff up. It's one of those kind of the kind of things. It's um, it just shows the level of awareness, the level of wherewithal, and lo and behold, the, these cleaner races, which are thought to probably benefit a lot from keeping track of of individual clients and being able to recognize them because if that client was last year five days ago they're more likely to have a lot more parasite load than if they were last year five minutes ago they're, they're going to get less treatment in that situation because they're, they're being maybe addicts and they're coming too often so um so there's a there's a there's a that it, it behooves these cleaners to have a good memory of individuals and fishes have been shown to have individual recognition they can even recognize our faces individually and um so they um oh, oh yeah what i wanted to say is another study that follows on from this ability to recognize and to be aware is that cleaner races these same species that do this cleaning have been uh, shown to pass the so-called mirror self-recognition test, the MSR test, which is considered the, the standard of testing for uh, self-awareness, uh, which is thought to be a pretty high-level cognitive skill. You put a mark on their body. In this case, I think it was like red or blue gel underneath their chin where the fish can't see it on themselves. But if you present them with a mirror and they look in the mirror, they can see that dot. And they responded in an interesting way. They swam in certain postures that they could see the dot. And then some of them would swim down to the bottom and try and scrape the dot off and then come back and check them, check to see if they got rid of it, all this kind of stuff. Really, really fits very closely with this sense that they're aware, not just of their world and surroundings, but they're aware of themselves or self-aware, also called metacognition, I think is another term for that. So... You know, th this is just so far beyond what our old uh, presumptions assumed about them as not not having these these traits, and yet science shows that. And it almost, in a way, makes it more painful because we think about the fact that you know two trillion fish or so are pulled out of the oceans, and the way that they're killed is so barbaric and so painful. You know, left suffocating on ice, um, they're cut open and left to bleed out to death while being gutted alive. You know, being crushed, having their swim bladders rupturing from the change in pressure. It's almost cruel in a way to think that because they're so intelligent, because these fish are, are self-aware in, in ways that we didn't really think you know, a couple of decades ago, to put that into perspective of what we do to them makes it even more horrifying than it did before we knew. It's just, it's really quite shocking. One thing that, to go back to something more positive, I found quite interesting was that notion of mutualism that you were speaking of. And um, it's wonderful to think of fish, not just display mutualism to their own species, but to other species as well. And I remember, I think it was in the TEDx talk you did as well, where you were talking about grouper and moray eels and how they work together when they're hunting. And so the moray eels can kind of go through the corals and kind of flush the fish out and then the grouper can catch the fish that comes out. And so there's this display of mutualism between different species. And one thing I found really fascinating about that was when the group of fish would almost hang above the prey fish and would be pointing at the prey fish, trying to entice the moray eel to come and help them hunt. I just thought that was a wonderful little relationship that they were developing with each other, again, for this act of mutualism, which is something we don't really think about fish displaying. You showed some great expertise there, there Ed. Um, you must have read my book or you must have read some of these papers and seen some talks and stuff. Yeah, it is terrific. The, uh, the mutualism, it's another kind of mutualism, uh, cooperative alliance between specific groupers and specific moray eels. And I think it's important we say specific because this is not a willy-nilly, uh, let's find a moray eel. No, it's like, let's go, and get, let's go find Joe the moray eel 
um, because I've worked with Joe before and it works out well. And studies, actually captive studies, find that indeed these groupers are particular about who they choose. They tend to choose individuals and work with them who they know from past experiences and they know they're cooperative. If, uh, if Ed, uh, Ed the Moriel is not usually ready to come out and, and hunt with me, then forget it, Ed, you're gonna go do your own thing. I'll, I'll, I'll work with someone else. And then they, uh, the, the, more, the, the grouper invites the moraeel with, with a head shake gesture. This is considered pretty sophisticated communication because it's not only between species, but it's referring to another time and a place. They're not hunting together yet. It's simply a signal of invitation. That's called a referential signal. Uh, and there's, uh, there's very few examples known from the animal kingdom or queendom, if you like, of referential signaling. Uh, and if the Moriel, you know, Moriel recognizes the signal, and, oh, it's my friend, uh, you know, P Pamela. Uh, let's let's go with Pamela and uh, across the reef. And they, and as you said, they they're complementary hunting styles. The Moriel is like a ferret of the sea, can go into the nooks and crannies of the reef. Uh, so low and be, uh, you know, woe betide, I should say, any poor fish who they target because there's not really many escape options. It's like into the matrix of the reef where the moray is going to come after you. And then if you flee into the open water, well, the, the big grouper is ready to pounce. Uh, and it's it's been estimated that their hunting success when they collaborate this way is up to five times higher in terms of how many fishes they eat each during a, a period of time than if they forage alone. So wow. it's a very, very rewarding relationship, very effective. Yeah, exactly. I suppose what is interesting, what you said then is how they work together again. You know, they'll create a friendship or a relationship, at least a mutual working relationship, and then go back and, and pair up again when it's hunting time again. Um, let's move on then and become, some, or maybe discuss something that's a little bit more uh, potentially ambiguous. One thing I get a lot um, is vegans often asking me, you know, what about mussels and oysters? You know, obviously I understand that salmon and tuna and the majority of, of the marine life we consume is not ethical, but can we show or do we know that consuming mussels and oysters is something that would be unethical? Yeah, it's a, it's a very important question um, to consider the invertebrates. And I'm happy to say that invertebrates are are coming under the microscope a lot more in the figurative sense. There's a lot more interest in them. You may have seen that in the news uh, articles about crabs and lobsters. Do lobsters feel pain when they're boil thrown in boiling water? Let's, let's for, first of all, give them the benefit of the doubt, heaven forbid. But um, yeah, I, I, I don't know that there's much, or I'm not aware of, any, of the literature on oysters uh, and, and maybe say clams. Uh, these are these are mollusks, uh, which is a very big phylum and very diverse phylum. It includes the most highly regarded in terms of cognition and emotion uh, animals of invertebrates of all. That is the octopuses and the squids and nautiluses, kettlefish. They all belong to this so-called cephalopod uh, group, uh, and they show signs of emotionality and cognition. So they're related quite. I can't say closely, but they're within the same phylum as, as say oysters and clams and such. So that alone should give us pause. The fact that their their cousins are pretty clearly sentient and they are now actually happy to say uh, protected under a number of animal protection laws, uh, not nearly protected enough, but it certainly uh, shows that we are considering and thinking about them being sentient. Um, the fact that oysters, I mean, they're built a lot different than octopuses, right? So they're harder to read. If there's emotion in there, it's pretty hard to tell. They got this mantle of shell around them. Uh, but, you know, giant clams have eyes, have a row of eyes where the lips of the clam meet. Um, and, of course, they close up when they're 
protecting themselves. I've seen footage of a of a of some kind of clam on the bottom of the water moving along, pulling itself with its its foot, which is a big muscular organ. It sticks the foot out, looks a lot like a tongue coming out of our mouth, grabs the sand and pulls itself. And so it's moving like that. Not not exactly efficient, highly efficient, but nevertheless, this creature is moving from A to B. So motility again, mobility is tends to be a, an important criterion in terms of the evolution of pain because you have the ability to move away from a bad event. So the fact that these are relatively sessile, that the oysters tend to be stick, stick in one place, um, they are perhaps, it's a tougher case to make. I don't know though of any studies where they've actually subjected these individuals, these creatures to putatively painful events uh, or the opportunity to go to a more pleasant situation. Uh, I'm not sure. I know that they've done studies on on snails, uh, land snails, um, uh, and they show that they have they will self-stimulate. They will uh, they will try to repeat what looks like a pleasurable situation. So the jury's out, Ed. Um, there's some interesting science that's coming out on invertebrates, but uh, there's not been much that I'm aware of in in terms of of oysters specifically, and, and say clams. Um, Time, may, time may, may change that quite soon because there is a, a lot of interest now in vertebrate sentient. I mean, it's an interesting question for the future. I mean, I think what you said about lobsters earlier, the benefit of the doubt. I mean, with lobsters, it should be very obvious that we shouldn't be doing these things to them. But even with mussels and oysters, one feels that the benefit of the doubt idea should really reign supreme here as well. I mean, I think that from what I understand, they have a ganglia, which is not a central nervous system, but is like a collection of, of, of nerves. What that means in, in a tangible sense is hard to say, as, as you've rightfully pointed out, especially as we don't have any science to say for certain. But what that shows, I suppose, is that they have an increasing or a more, their bodies are more developed to feel than say plants are. And I suppose that situation of when we have the choice between one or the other, the benefit of the doubt would hopefully suggest that let's wait until the science is back on this one and maybe just stick to that plant-based diet for now that's how i feel about it yeah if i could just comment on on that thing about ganglia and and, and sophistication of nervous systems I, i've just finished writing a book that's called going to be called superfly it's not coming out until may uh, but it's about the unexpected lives of the world's most successful insects that can be debated whether flies are the most successful insects but they sure are a fascinating group and um, I do write a bit about the, the, the emerging evidence for the possibility of sentience and awareness in insects. And part of that argument is that, okay, say take a fruit fly brain, maybe 200,000 neurons, uh, whereas we are in the tens of billions, if I remember correctly, you know, or 10 billion or something. I, I forget the number and I shouldn't be estimating. I need to get that committed to my own tiny memory. Um, but in any way, in any rate, there are studies showing, you know, uh, where you can, you can visualize a fly's brain with technology and it's lighting up in different places when it's, when it's stimulated or when it's courting a female. Uh, they, they, these things, these, these creatures make quote unquote songs by flapping their wings, buzzing their wings at high speed in certain frequencies in certain ways. Uh, the courtship for a lot of flies is very sophisticated and drawn out. Um, it's it's uh, it gives you pause uh, and and consider that you know with say a hundred thousand just a hundred thousand neurons, still a lot of neurons. And if you count the number of possible connections between those neurons across them, it it comes out to I think I believe it's more than all the grains of sand on the planet. So with a lot less neurons than we have you still can have a huge amount of connectivity and all, all sorts of potential for 
maybe thinking for feeling that's, that's going on there. So yeah, I agree with you on the benefit of the doubt thing. We don't have to be killing and eating animals anyway. Um, but, uh, you know, if you're thinking of oh, which, which animals could I harm without, without doing harm, or could I eat without doing harm, we need to be pretty mindful that it may be a much broader spectrum of animals than we've been thinking in the past. I suppose that's a humbling realization in a sense, isn't it, that we're always learning more. I mean, I always think about it in terms of, of whaling and how really most nations, or at least you know, commercial fishing nations, were whaling into the 70s, right? And obviously whaling still occurs, but now it's something that as a, a global society we well, we look at it with a sense of disappointment at those who still do it. But there was a time where we were questioning whether whaling should be ethical or unethical. And so I, I suppose in the sense of we've gone from that to a point where we're now, as, with your book coming out, discussing the sentience of, of insects and in particular fruit flies and flies in general shows just how quickly we can progress as a species to question our actions and question the lives of others. And who knows in, in decades to come what else we'll learn about how amazing life itself is and I think it's a humbling thing but again that, there's always that part of me that finds it somewhat cruel because of how much suffering we inflict and it'd almost be more preferable if these animals didn't have any significant cognition that they didn't feel in a way that would always almost be more preferable because then we wouldn't have to worry about the huge amounts of suffering that we um, inflict on them all and to think that maybe even the smallest of insects who we often disregard entirely to think that they too could also be victims of our, I suppose, ignorance and potential ar arrogance is a, is a hard burden to bear, I think. Yeah, I, I, I hear you on that. Uh, I, there is a flip side I want to mention, um, and this relates to a subject I've, I've spent a lot of time thinking about in my, in my career. I've written a couple of books about animal pleasure, and the uh, pleasure is kind of the uh, flip side of pain. There's pain and suffering. There's joy and pleasure. And so, I, I it, it's a, it seems logical to me that if a, if a, if, a, if an animal has the physical makeup and the capacity to to suffer and feel pain, then that that animal probably is also con constructed in such a way as be, as to being able to experience pleasure and positive emotions and positive feelings. So, so uh, even though it's daunting to think that my God, if insects can suffer, then you know there's a lot of suffering in the world. But consider also there's a lot of joy and pleasure if they if they can if they can have those negative feelings they could probably have the positive feelings I've often wondered what I've seen bumblebees and honeybees you know and for that matter flies because they're important pollinators but they go diving into these flowers and they're just the energy and they're collecting that pollen and it's bright colors and they're I know they're getting nectar in their plant flowers have evolved to produce nectar to attract uh, you know most of them produce nectar some of them deceive the insects back to deception but so if 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 a bee is sentient, then it must be a pretty fun thing to dive into a flower, and you're surrounded with this color, and you're. I know I'm being anthropomorphic here, and you're sticking that 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 feathery tongue out and and lapping up that that nectar, and just the fer the the feverish way they go about doing that. It's like oh, I, I, they could be really having a good time with that. So uh, there's a lot of pleasure in the world too if there's more pain. That's a great way of looking at it. And actually thinking about the bees, then, it, you know, it reminds you of the excitement that dogs have, you know, when dogs are going to play fetch or even just going for a walk, they show so much excitement. And in a way, I think non-human animals show more excitement and happiness than we do. You know, and I think that their capacity to feel pleasure, maybe in certain ways, is above ours. And I think of that, that bee in the... Uh, in the wild flower and that's a lovely image i've never really thought about the pleasure of that that they receive um yeah that's i like that that makes me feel more optimistic 
one of the nice things about the social media era that we live in, which certainly has its negatives, but it, but it, but you can, it's such a great platform to share videos of, of animals leaping around in excitement, dogs, uh, you know, and then mixed species playing with each other, a dog and a deer chasing each other in a yard or running back and forth. And I mean, it really opens our eyes to a side of nature and animals' lives that we, we, we don't typically get fed when we watch nature documentaries. It tends to be all about the struggle for survival, the battle for the fittest and predator-prey stuff because it's it's kind of sensational, you know, isn't it? And, and, and it is sensational. We're drawn to, to watch that and to tune in. Um, but uh, there's this whole other side to life that uh, we're beginning to see more of it. I'm beginning to see more of it on documentaries and such. Um, but uh, there's, there's, there's still a big imbalance, and it would be nice to see that balance corrected where we actually see more information about the positive sides of animals' lives. One thing that I was thinking of when you were talking about videos online is there was this video, and I think it must have been from a, a David Attenborough documentary. It was of this fish, and I can't remember what species of fish, but they're using their fins to create this huge mosaic in the sand to attract a mate. And it has this, this wonderful shot where the camera is kind of like zooming out. And so you see this huge mosaic that this fish has spent, I guess, days maybe putting together just to attract a mate. And uh, that videos like that are just so wonderful because it really reinforces to us just how special non-humans are and the things they can achieve. And so you're right, social media has a lot of negatives, which we all know, but the positives of it are, of course, also really significant and have shaped so much about how we view animals and our relationship with them. I, I love that that video. Yeah, I've seen that too. And I, I write about that in the book. I mean, if we were, you and I were having this conversation 10, 10 years ago, we wouldn't be mentioning it because it hadn't even been discovered yet. And and it turns out to be a that beautiful six foot wide mandala like circle is made by a, a tiny little puffer fish that, w- that was previously undescribed and unknown to science. And uh, it, it, it's meant to, it's made by the male and he's trying to impress a female. It's, it's a, pe- it's a peacock phenomenon under, underwater, you know, in a fish context. And, and they, 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 you know, if they mate and they drop the eggs in there and they cover them up with bits of shells and they, you know, they fuss over it and, uh, I'm a little puzzled as to why it works as a nesting site because it looks like a big, you know, a big badge of uh, invitation. Like the restaurant is open, come and get your fish <laughs> eggs here, predators. But it's evolved, so it, it must work, right? Uh, the natural selection ensures that the the, the 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 effective strategies are the ones that tend to get chosen over time. So, so, uh, but it's probably a result of generations of of choosy females, and it raises this interesting question of: Is there an aesthetic pleasure there? Is a female does she feel a certain pleasure when she regards this beautiful thing? Does the male feel pride? I mean, uh, I don't know of anyone who's testing for pride in in a fish, but scientists are very innovative. Don't be too surprised if somebody's going to come out with a way to test for for pride in a puffer fish or some other fish. Um, but of the, all these feelings are quite possible, and and I think it does speak to an art, a certain a sense of artistry, and and perhaps also a sense of aesthetics. That's a good point. You made a really interesting statement, which was, you know, ten years ago we wouldn't have been having this conversation because we didn't know. And I suppose in ten years' time there'll be so many more conversations we will be having, which is exciting. And I think um, the question I suppose would be, since you published the book, and I guess even longer than that have you seen a significant change in the way that um, i suppose maybe on a bigger level politicians but on a smaller level just people are relating do you think there is a change that will continue to happen with people's attitudes towards the oceans 
Yeah, I'm not so well tuned into the political side of things, but or politicians. But um, certainly, uh, I can tell you in the in the in the annals of science, the uh, the hallways of scientific endeavor and discovery and intrigue, it's changed a lot since I was an undergrad. I went into undergrad in 1978. I had my first year at university, and uh, the way science science was un, in transition at that time from uh, sort of really in hindsight a bit of a revolution in in science uh, for most of the 20th century uh, it was considered unscientific and and not very rigorous to ask questions about how animals think and feel it was the skinnerian era the era of behaviorism where you where you don't you don't want to make assumptions about how an animal might be experiencing something yeah they may have thoughts they may have emotions but we can never know so let's just assume they don't I, what a what a terribly negative way to look at life instead of the other way around it's like yeah they might have emotions and, and cognition let's let's kind of assume they do uh, and and anyway but anyway fortunately in the in the ensuing decades uh, and I, I was lucky to be you know doing my degrees in biology around this time that this was catching hold um, there's been a, a big shift and now it's it's not just accepted it's a de rigueur to be asking questions about animal emotions and animal thinking and you know how they communicate and what it means and there's tons of studies being done on that thank goodness because it, it does allow us to finally see them in a much more sophisticated light than we used to so a uh, nice point you make about you know 10 years from now there'll be all sorts of exciting new discoveries that we we haven't yet seen yeah absolutely i suppose an interesting question is we've often obviously talked a lot about um, the needlessness of, of killing these animals. What about in a situation, say, in the pet industry, where you know, obviously people like having aquariums, and in a way, I suppose, people's uh, longing for aquariums and fish in their rooms is, is a good sign of them finding fish interesting and enjoying uh, their company or enjoying watching them. But the negative to that, I suppose, is uh, the suffering that the fish endure and so i was wondering if there's any any thoughts that you had about the fish pet industry and and whether or not you think that's a an ethical thing for people to partake in yeah important issue to raise ed i'm glad you mentioned it uh and it gives me an opportunity to mention a new film that has just come out about this very issue it's called the dark hobby and i think part of the meaning of that title is it's kind of hidden away i mean most people don't don't really uh, have much awareness about the whole aquarium industry and uh, but it but it turns out it's it's a little bit like cut flowers. Uh, you know, these these beautiful fishes are caught on reefs using methods that are often harmful to the reefs and harmful to many fish that may die in the collecting if they use explosives or if they use poisons, which are quite quite commonly used. And then the animals are put in bags, you know, plastic bags, shipped, um, and then they get to the destination sometimes far away from, it could be from Indonesia to the United States or Europe or Japan. They're, those are big uh, countries that can consume in this regard. And it's estimated that 90% of these, these fishes don't make it to their destination from the wild, uh, such as the, the difficulties of their handling. And, and then those who end up in an aquarium, 90% uh, are, are dead within a year. So that's what I mean partly by comparing it to cut flowers. They're beautiful, but they die soon after. So there's a continual replacement. And it's also wild creatures. I mean, yes, there's some captive breeding, but in terms of the quality of life, it's no better for a captive bred than a wild cod, of course. And um, so it is a, a really troublesome. It is a really troublesome thing. And 
you know, now now we, we have technology, just as we have technology in foods that can replace fishes, we also have technology where you can have a beautiful big aquarium on your flat screen television. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a video and it shows these fishes swimming around. I mean, it's very settling and, and people have done studies. It is calming to watch them. I would say more calming to watch them in their beauty, knowing that they're still in their wild habitats and that you're not, that you don't have them captive where they're kind of alienated from their normal life. They're unable to perform a lot of the behaviors they normally would. So, so if anyone is, is, is interested in possibly getting an aquarium, get, get one on your television screen where you can, I think Netflix, they have fireplaces uh, with the fire going very nice, or you can have an aquarium as an, as another option. That's a lovely idea. I actually have never thought about that, but that's something that I will be doing from now on. I love, I've always, because I, I, I always, it's a very selfish thing, but I always used to enjoy going uh, and seeing fish tanks in, in um, botanical gardens or um, even in zoos where often they have big displays. Um, and I always used to enjoy that. I always used to find it great, very peaceful, as you say, watching fish. Um, but now, as you rightfully point out, we why would we do this when we can watch them in higher definition potentially and we've got such good tvs these days we can watch fish and we can watch any fish we want in in their home natural environments that's a lovely idea there's actually something happening on a bigger scale i think in maybe saudi arabia or some, somewhere they're designing a huge aquarium that would be completely um, i guess tvs or, or even projections like holograms maybe yeah so i think the idea is they want to phase out the or people's desire to go and see real whales and real sharks because they can go see this display and you could again you could have any whale any shark a great white shark in there it'd be so lifelike and i guess technology is going to be so great for animals in the future lab-grown meat you know lab-grown fish meat as well as is something that's happening but i suppose even in this sense with aquariums both home aquariums and, and larger scale aquariums is technological advancements will speak or do wonders hopefully for marine life that's a yeah, I'd like, I really like that idea, Jonathan. That's cool. Um, but just before we go, I, I wanted to point people towards the direction of, of what a fish knows and encourage people um, to buy that. But I also know that you're working on a new book called uh, A Boy and a Fish. Is, is that the, the, a book you're working on right now? That's right, A Boy and a Fish. It it's, tells two parallel stories of, a, of an eight-year-old boy going out on his first tripping, fishing trip with his granddad. And then it all tells, tells also the story of the fish, uh, an archer fish, actually, who he catches. Uh, at the end. So the two stories run parallel and then they meet at the uh, denouement, the, the climax of the story. And it's meant for young kids. And, and part of the big goal of this is to legitimize the feelings of concern and empathy for other creatures that I think a lot of children have. And, and I think fishing is a prime example of where kids are, are taken out in, into the situation where they see violence against an animal and, and I think a lot of us I certainly speak for myself when I say that I had all sorts of conflicted feelings and 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 I was upset inside when I saw how these fishes were were treated in the boat where I was fishing as a kid so uh, it's really a story about fishing but really a story about empathy beneath the surface it sounds it sounds quite um relatable to myself actually because I remember when I was younger I went fishing twice and uh, the fishing that I did was was catch and release and I remember that you didn't have to do catch and release I remember being around this lake and I'd caught a couple of rainbow trout and, and put them back in feeling you know not too phased by it but then I saw this other person who caught this rainbow trout and he just started bludgeoning them so close to me and I think it was the first time I'd seen 
um, real violence towards animals, like, you know, in, in person, you know, only six or seven feet away. And it was shocking. I remember being really disturbed by it. And it was so interesting because my family, even though we were catching the fish, we'd put them back. But then once we'd finished fishing, we'd go into the, the shop and we'd buy already killed rainbow trout. And we would buy them so that we had to gut them. And so we did everything but the killing. And I just found that was, to reflect on that is so interesting that we would catch them and then we'd buy them whole and have to gut them. But we wouldn't do the actual bludging ourselves. And it's I guess it speaks volumes about our dislike of the of the killing, which of course is the reality if, if we want to eat them. But it is so true that we are put off. Yeah, you you mentioned the violence. I mean, there's the physical violence, and and I would I would I would add the emotional, psychological violence done to a child who may be very empathic, mm. and uh, that can be traumatic. You know, it, it really gets to us to see animals treated violently and to suffer. It's very disturbing, especially for those who are pretty sensitive about those things. Yeah, it is a horrible thing, and. I guess it's it is a big issue. I think of uh, of young children who get into uh, hunting scenarios with with their dads or their parents, and they're kind of forced into these environments. I, I think fishing is quite similar, um, where you know you have these children and they see their their parents enjoying this activity, and to them they get validated. Their parents' love to them is validated if they partake in the action or if they enjoy the action. I know, and I think there's a huge problem in the U.S., but I, I suppose all over the world where young children are desensitized to violence because they associate that violence is coming with the validation of their parents love or respect or or happiness and i think that's a really dangerous and toxic dynamic and fishing is is part of that as well yeah well said ed can't say it better than that well i appreciate that well i think we kind of covered such a broad range of topics um and really i've had such a it's been very engrossing for me and um, very stimulating and I've learned a lot and I really appreciate you taking the time to speak to me. I appreciate all of your work, both with fishes and of course, all non-human animals um, and what you do for veganism. It, it means the world to me. And of course, I'm very grateful um, that you've taken the time to enlighten myself and of course, anyone listening to this podcast with all the knowledge that you've gained on this journey so far. Well, thanks for having me, Ed. I really enjoyed the conversation and thanks for what you do as well. Thank you. All right, guys. Well, thank you so much for listening. I hope you've enjoyed the podcast and I will speak to you all in next week's episode. But until then, please stay safe, enjoy your week, and we'll speak soon.